Let's open your Bibles to the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 28, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 15. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Entitled the message this morning, Coming to Grips with the Resurrection. Coming to Grips with the Resurrection. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 15. The, uh, the events that surround the resurrection that Sunday morning could probably well be described as chaotic. The uh, Gospels record for us that there were multiple appearances of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ to multiple people on that particular day. And when you attempt to put those four accounts together, it's not an easy thing to do. It's widely acknowledged that harmonizing the four accounts is a bit of a challenge. And uh, that's I think, just speaks of the fluidity of the situation there that morning. As various people came and went and encountered Christ. For example, Mary Magdalene met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The other women that were there at the tomb, met the resurrected Christ. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus met the resurrected Christ. Peter met the resurrected Christ. And then the 11 disciples, alone in a locked room on Sunday evening, met and encountered the resurrected Christ. And so there are five actual appearances of Christ to one or more individuals in his resurrection body. So trying to put all of that together, maybe just to sort of set a a groundwork for you here, I'd like to propose a simple harmony for you. And you can jot this down if you so choose, but I'm just going to propose a simple harmony of the events of that particular day, and then we will dig in to see what Matthew has to say. Because Matthew only gives us a slice of the story. He only provides a certain amount of the details on that particular day, and he does so in order to accomplish his purposes. So let me, let me propose to you just a harmony, so you kind of have this in your own thinking. It appears that the first person to see the resurrected Christ was Mary Magdalene herself. He recorded for us in John's Gospel, John chapter 20, I won't turn you there, but there's an extended account there in John chapter 20, and Mary Magdalene herself arrives, and according to John, it's still dark when she gets there. It's still dark when she arrives, and and, uh, the sun, I think, is just coming up. So uh, Matthew will say that Mary is along with the other women, and so how does Mary see Christ and the other women don't see him at the same time and so forth? And so just proposing the reality that that, uh, probably uh, Mary started out with the other women and then went on ahead of them, kind of hustled on ahead to get there, and there, as the sun was just breaking, she notices The stone moved away. She doesn't actually meet Christ at this point, but she sees the stone moved away and she leaves to find John and Peter. The other women then arrive, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome and and Joanna, and they arrive there at the tomb and they encounter the angel of the Lord. And uh, Matthew narrates that for us. They leave and then they do meet Christ. Matthew 28 gives us that. And then after they leave, the soldiers leave. So at that point, the soldiers are gone from the tomb as well. Peter and John, having been told by Mary Magdalene that the tomb is empty, they are then running to the tomb. John, again, records this for us. They arrive, they enter the tomb, they look around, they see the grave clothes laying there, and they turn and leave. And Mary herself, lingering, encounters Christ. So I misspoke earlier when I said she was the first one. I apologize for that. She actually encounters him uh, after the other women do. Uh, Jesus then appears to Peter, as best we can tell. Luke chapter 24 and verse 33 indicates that to us. That It's not narrated for us anywhere other than Luke says that uh, they give witness to the fact that uh, Jesus had appeared to Peter. And so he does that and, and uh, restores Peter, I think, after Peter's sin. Then Jesus travels with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember that whole thing. He walks along with them and gives them the Bible lesson to uh, 
you know, of all times. He explains the entire Old Testament to them on the short walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they stop to have dinner, and in the breaking of bread, they recognize who he is, and of course he disappears from them, and they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples they've seen the risen Lord, and the disciples are there in the upper room, and they're locked in that room for fear of the authorities. Jesus passes through the, uh, the door or the wall of the room, enters the room, encounters them there, and there he uh, says to them, you know, basically, touch me, see that I'm real. Uh, he asks for something to eat, they give him something to eat, and so forth, and, and that's the Sunday night encounter. So I think that's basically the way it goes down. But Matthew, and let's kind of focus in on Matthew here, his narration of the events is very, very simple. He doesn't add a lot of detail here in, in these 15 verses. And in fact, he speaks just really of the reality of the resurrection. He just says it's there, it happened. And then he looks at some of the reactions to it. You know, primarily, he looks at the reactions of the women and the reaction of the soldiers and the authorities of Israel. And that's his focus. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning together, is the reality of the resurrection and people's reaction to it. Another just sort of interesting observation, I think, as we get started here in the text, is to note the use of the word behold. The use of the word behold. Matthew likes behold, and uh, he uses it in his, uh, in his gospel a lot, and it's designed to cause you to stop and to, and to contemplate what is about to be narrated to you. It's to stand out. It's a marker. It, it's the idea of pay attention. Uh, you won't believe this. This is amazing. This doesn't happen, um, but, but incredibly rarely. I mean, this is something that ought to be noticed and contemplated. So the use of the word behold, he actually uses it five times in these verses. Five times. Uh, first in verse 2, where he speaks... Uh, of the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord there. He says, behold, a severe earthquake, and so forth, and we'll get to that. He uses it over in uh, verse 7. He uses it twice over in verse 7, where he, uh, the angel is giving direction to the women, and twice he says that I'm behold, so heads up, pay attention, listen to what I'm telling you. Uh, it appears again in verse 9 when Jesus meets them. And then in verse 11, depending on your translation, it actually is there in the Greek. The, uh, the New American Standard update doesn't include it, but actually in the Greek, it's verse 11. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city. So pay attention to that. The guard goes into the city. So five times Matthew indicates for us that there are things happening here that are very, very, very much out of the ordinary and should cause us to, to give them some contemplation. So let me, uh, with that as a little bit of background, let me read the text for you, and then let's dig in. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold... He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. They took the money. And did as they had been instructed. 
And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So, this morning as we take a look at these 15 verses, I want to make some observations for you. I want to make some observations, actually seven observations. Seven observations from these verses regarding the resurrection so that we can evaluate our own reactions to this amazing event. Matthew is giving us the reactions of the women, the reactions of the soldiers, and the reaction of the authorities to this event. I want, as we go through and make these observations, for us to evaluate our own reactions to this incredible event. Okay, so that's our plan this morning, and let's begin with the first That is that the resurrection was unexpected. The resurrection was unexpected. For us, that's a little hard, I think, to get our our minds around. We have become complacent, to a certain degree, with the the idea of the resurrection. We are followers of the resurrected one. Of course he rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, right, we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. And there's truth to that. But for his disciples, this entire resurrection was completely unexpected. This is not what they were expecting to happen that Sunday morning. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now you remember that uh, Mary... uh, Matthew had narrated for us, uh, verse 61, chapter 27, Mary Magdalene was there along with Mary, mother of James and Joseph, uh, and sitting opposite the grave as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus laid the body to rest in the grave. And so they were observing where it was. Then they left and they went and they, and they purchased some spices. But by that time, the Sabbath was upon them. Sabbath began at sundown, roughly 6 p.m. Jesus uh, died about 3 p.m. So in that short window of opportunity, they, they saw where the body was laid. They went to purchase spices because they intended to give him the, the kind of, 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 of uh, funeral that, that they would want this one that they were so devoted to to have. So they went out to purchase the spices they needed. But, but the Sabbath came upon them. And they didn't finish. So there that Saturday, they're, you know, f- fulfilling their Sabbath uh, responsibilities. And then again at sundown on Saturday night, the Sabbath ends. And they go back out, we're told, to purchase more spices. And then by that time, it's dark. And so they wait until Sunday morning. There it is, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, John tells us that it was still dark when they set out. And they are on their way to anoint the body of Christ. Mark chapter 16 is uh, worth bringing alongside at this point. So Mark 16, verses 1 to 3. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So we find out here now it's not just Mary Magdalene, and it's not just Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. We also have Salome there, which is Jesus' aunt. Uh, We find out in Luke that Joanna, another of the ladies, was also there with them. So this group of women is coming. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So that's why I say, I think Mary ran on ahead before the sun had, you know, had completely risen, and she gets there, sees the empty tomb, leaves, and then the ladies get there. Verse 3, they're saying to one another along the way, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they are coming to anoint his body. Why? Because he's dead. Because he's dead. That's their expectation. That's why they're there. That's why they got up early on Sunday morning. They're going to the tomb Because they had witnessed their Lord's crucifixion. They know he's dead. They've seen him laid there. Their big obstacle is they're trying to figure out when we get there, who's going to roll this gigantic stone away from the mouth of the tomb. I love it. Because these women are so moved by their their love and devotion for the Lord that they don't really think through the practical reality of, wow, this thing is gigantic. Who's going to do it? But that didn't stop them. They're on their way there to anoint the body of Christ, to anoint the body of their dead leader. They're not looking for a resurrection. 
In fact, none of the disciples are looking for a resurrection. Notice verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. I know why you're here. You're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. You're looking for a dead Messiah. Verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Why do we need to go and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead? They should know that he has risen from the dead. He told them he would rise from the dead, but they don't expect it. They don't expect it. They are not looking for a resurrection. In fact, resurrection is the last thing that is on their mind. And then even when presented with evidence of the resurrection, it takes quite a while for the reality of it to really break through to them. They just can't wrap their minds around it. The reality of it and the implications that come from it. And I think it's important to make that point because there are those, uh, of course, who would who would think that this whole thing was a plot, and in fact, later we'll get to the end of the section here where those, you know, the soldiers will say his disciples came and, and stole the body, right, so they could create a lie of a resurrection and so forth. They're not thinking resurrection, not at all. Okay, so, so for them, the resurrection is entirely unexpected. Second, it was supernatural. It was unexpected and it was supernatural. The resurrection was a supernatural event. Verse 2, behold. Behold. This doesn't happen. Behold. A severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. A severe earthquake occurred Okay, a massive earthquake occurred. How? Why? For, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. That's why an earthquake occurred. So there is this massive seismological movement of the crust of the earth brought about by the, 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 the tearing open, as it were, of the, of the spirit realm entering into the physical realm. And an angel of the Lord came into space and time in order to roll away the stone and sit upon it. Okay, so it's not the earthquake that that rolls the stone away. The earthquake earlier had collapsed the tombs, you remember, in 27, and uh, the dead that came to life when Christ rose from the dead came forth from their broken open tombs. Here it's not the earthquake that rolls away the stone, it's the earthquake is the sign that, that heaven has entered into space and time in the person of this angel of the Lord. And he came and he rolled away the stone and he sat upon it, interesting, he sat upon the stone. Why would he sit upon the stone? Why didn't he sit somewhere else? He sat upon the stone because he is demonstrating his authority over it. He, he just basically swept it aside. The women are trying to figure out who's going to move the stone for us, right? The angel, this didn't strain him a bit. He just enters in and boom, he moves the stone away and he sits on top of it, his conquest. In his appearance, check out his appearance. It's like lightning. It's like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. They're struggling to, to describe what they see. This angel appears like lightning. What does lightning look like? Well, lightning is, you know, is incredibly intense and bright, right? So the, 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 the form and the appearance of this angel is of this, this incredibly powerful radiating light. His clothing itself is, is white. Uh, for them, snow is, the, is the, the thing that they would use to compare to for whiteness. And so he just appears in all of his holiness, all of his purity, all of his splendor. And the guards, when they see him, notice, they shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. This is a supernatural event. It's a supernatural event, and it's, and it's uh, set aside that way, or, or, or we're, we're, we recognize that reality because an angel of the Lord comes to be the messenger. 
Now, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord. Now, the last time an angel of the Lord appears in the life of Christ, it is at his, his uh, conception and birth. So back to Matthew chapter 1. Just kind of tie this together for you here. Matthew chapter 1. And verse 20. Now the context here is that uh, Joseph finds out that his, his betrothed, right, his fiancée Mary is pregnant. And uh, she comes up with this uh, highly improbable uh, story about, uh, you know, that, that she's still a virgin and that the Spirit of God has come on her and conceived the child in her and so forth. Joseph beside himself, he didn't know what to do. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. He was going to divorce her secretly, verse 19, but verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Over to chapter 2. After Christ has been born into this world, right, Herod is, uh, finds out from the Magi and he's going to, to uh, slaughter the children there in Bethlehem and its surrounding area. And so uh, verse 13, when they had gone, that is the Magi had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go back into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, what I want you to notice, I want you to notice is that in Jesus' birth and in his resurrection, we have the announcement of an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord. Furthermore, what I want you to notice is the use of the word behold as it's associated with the message of the angel of the Lord. The point being communicated here is that this is an amazingly rare and startling occurrence. An amazingly rare and startling occurrence. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of God, just doesn't come into space and time every other day of the week, and make pronouncements and announcements from heaven, particularly concerning God's own Son, the Messiah. So these events are non-repeatable events. These are, these are once-in-forever announcements. First, of the birth of the, of the Son of God, the, the, the God-man coming into space and time, and then his conquest of death. It is an incredible, supernatural event. Furthermore, notice the effect of this angel of the Lord upon the guards themselves. By the way, what do you think it would be like to see an angel? Hmm? Some people um, misinterpret Hebrews where it says or some of you have entertained angels unaware and they think they're, um, you know, people coming over to dinner are angels. Nah, not so. Okay, context there, it's by the way talking about Abraham who did entertain angels unaware. Okay, hate to pop your bubble, but uh, you're not, angels are not visiting your home and you're not running into them on the street corner and all the rest of these things, okay? Angelic activity is exceedingly rare exceedingly rare and god when he when he sends an angel from the lord which that's what it means into space and time it has to do with with something incredibly significant uh, typically in relation to the salvation of his people and so here when he sends the angel to make the announcement here about the resurrection of christ notice the effect that it has upon these soldiers these soldiers. Now, these are, these are soldiers. I told you earlier, it could be Roman soldiers. I'm, I'm persuaded probably not that they're probably the temple guard. But ne- nonetheless, they are soldiers. And um, 
when they see this one who has an appearance like lightning and clothing as white as snow, they, they feel the earthquake, they, they see the stone ripped away from the door of the tomb, they didn't see the resurrection itself. In fact, there is no record anywhere in the Bible of an actual eyewitness account of the resurrection. Okay? It's a miracle. It happened. So, in any case, when they see, notice what happens to them. They become paralyzed. It says they shake. By the way, same, uh, same root, seismos, that we get the word earthquake from. So they have, a, they have a personal earthquake, as it were. And they become completely undone. And then notice they become like dead men. What are dead men like? They don't move. Okay? They don't move. They don't talk. They don't see. They don't hear. These soldiers are so overcome by the breaking in of, of the messenger of God into space and time that it absolutely lays them flat. It wipes them out. I also want you to notice here, still under the theme of, the, of its being supernatural, is I want you to notice that the angel already knows why the women are there. All right? You see it in verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. How does he know that? How does he know that? Well, because God knows all things and communicated it to his angel. So the angel knows why they are there. All of these are indicators of the, of the incredible supernatural reality of the resurrection of Christ. It is the, it is the inbreaking of the world to come into this world. And the, this angel, and actually the other gospel accounts say there are two angels. So again, that's part of the harmonization problem. So sometimes there's two, sometimes there's one. Matthew's focused on the one here that's doing the talking. I think that's the answer for that. In any way, this, this speaking angel announces the reality of the triumph of Christ over death. And if he triumphs over death, then he triumphs over Sin. Okay? He triumphs over sin. So, it's unexpected. It's supernatural. Third, the resurrection was validational. The resurrection was validational. Look at verse 6. He is not here. He is not here. For he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. Notice the end of verse 7. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. He's not here. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Jesus repeatedly said he would rise from the dead, didn't he? Matthew chapter 16 Go back to chapter 16. A year or so before this time. Jesus getting alone with his disciples way up in the, in the north part of, of the nation of Israel, up near Mount Hermon. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Verse 17, or chapter 17, rather, verse 9. As they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So he has said to them over the course of the year preceding these, 
this event here, that he's going to die and he's going to be raised on the third day. So, the angel says in verse 6, he's not here. He is not here, for he has what? He has risen, just as he said. Just as he said. The resurrection validates Christ. It validates Christ. His promises that he has made, his predictions of his own death, burial, and resurrection are validated in his resurrection. Validated in his resurrection. Beyond that, don't just take my word for it, the angel would say, right? Verse 6, do what? Come, see the place where he was lying. You will notice this through the gospel accounts when, when Jesus encounters, or, or here the angels speaking of, they, they will always invite the, those, those first disciples to, to verify it. You know, use your senses to verify this. You are not having a, a hallucination here. Come look. Come look where he was lying. See the place. And when they would have looked in there, what would they have seen? They would have seen the grave clothes set aside, just like Peter and John would see when they arrive only, you know, a few minutes later. So look inside the tomb. It is empty. He said he would rise from the dead. He has risen from the dead. Look inside the tomb. The tomb is empty. It is validation of all that he has said. Beyond that, the angel will go on to remind them of something further that Jesus has said. Right? He says, uh, go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. Well, back in chapter 26, back to chapter 26... This is when Jesus is in the upper room. Right? This is the night of his betrayal. Right after the Lord's Supper, verse 31 of chapter 26. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will do what? I will go ahead of you into Galilee. After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Notice what the angel pardon me, what the angel says to them here. He says, He has risen from the dead. Come look. The, the, the tomb is empty. And by the way, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. He is going to complete what he has said to you. He's gonna his his plan, he is carrying it out. He is alive. He is alive. And he is carrying out his plan, and his promised plan included meeting you in Galilee. Now, next, well, it won't be next week, but the week after, we'll, uh, we'll come back to this, and we'll see why he wanted to meet them in Galilee, right? So that's the last part of chapter 28. But Jesus is working out his plan, and the angel is, is uh, speaking of that reality. So the angel validates Christ through the... the the uh, fulfillment of his promised resurrection through the reality of the empty tomb that you can come and look and touch and through the reality of his promise that he will meet them in Galilee and we'll find that indeed he does. All of this validates Jesus' claim to be Messiah. All of this validates his claim. And along with his claim to being Messiah, his promise that his disciples will rule alongside him in the coming kingdom. So chapter 19, let's go back to chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration 
When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That, uh, that statement, that expression in the regeneration is speaking of Messiah's kingdom. In Messiah's kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, you also will sit and rule alongside of him. That is another prediction that's only valid, only good if Jesus rises from the dead. What good is a promise that you're going to rule alongside a dead guy? It's no good at all. But it is validated by his resurrection. So, is he the Messiah? He's absolutely the Messiah. He, 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 he predicted his own death and resurrection. The grave is empty. The, the angelic announcement of it. His earlier prediction that he is going to sit on the throne of David in the coming kingdom. And, he, and his, his statement to his disciples that you will reign alongside of me. All of these things are all bound up in the resurrection itself. His claim to be the Messiah rises and falls on the resurrection. If he be raised, he is Messiah. If not, he's just, right, a liar or a lunatic, right? Notice Jesus' own words, John, 7, John 10, verses 17 to 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So it speaks of his deity is bound up in his resurrection. Paul, reflecting on the resurrection, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and beginning in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, in other words, died in Christ, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. You are still in your sin. If Christ is still in the grave, you're still in your sin because the, the conquest of sin requires the conquest of the penalty of sin and the penalty of sin is death. Notice again Paul's reflection on the reality of the resurrection and how it plays into the, to the reality of Jesus' messianic kingship in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Talks of Jesus, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is his resurrection that is the exclamation point on all of who he is, all of what he has said, and all of what he has done. It is the validation of all of that. So it's unexpected, it's supernatural, natural, it's validational. Uh, fourth, it is transformational. The resurrection is transformational. Back to chapter 28, beginning in verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Transformational. These women... On the way to the tomb early on Sunday morning, are going to mourn. They're going to anoint the body of Jesus, but they're, but they're going to mourn. He's dead, or at least that's what they believe. But notice the transformation that, that comes over them through this encounter with the angel. Verse 8, they left the tomb quickly with fear... And great joy. Fear, of course, when one encounters the messenger of the Lord, one is afraid. 
One is afraid. One becomes aware of their own um, humanity and the, and, the, and the sinfulness and weakness of their own humanity in the light of one whose appearance is like lightning and whose clothing is as white as snow. It, it has a, a tendency to cause one's knees to get a little weak. So they are afraid, but, but notice the, and what I want to, to, to see here is the transformation that comes, the great joy that overcomes them. Great joy. They are, they are changed in a matter of just a couple of minutes from mourning to great joy. And notice the, how that great joy produces results. They run. They run to tell about it. The angel says to them, go quickly, verse 7, and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. They are transformed from mourners to, to, to these joy, these people overcome with joy, these women overcome with joy, and they are sent on a mission. So their original mission was to anoint his body. That has been transformed. And to now their mission is to do what? It's to go and tell of his resurrection. To go and tell of his resurrection. That, the news of the resurrection of Christ is not something to be kept to ourselves. It is something that needs to be told. And that's what the angel says to them. Go quickly and tell. Now that ought to stand out to us because just to... You know, in the last few verses of the chapter, Jesus will appear to all his disciples, right? 500 at one time. And what will he say to them? Go and tell, basically, right? Make disciples. So it begins here. The resurrection transforms people's mission in life. It transforms their mission in life. It turns mourning to joy and it sends people out on a mission to tell others. Beyond that, it transforms these women into worshipers, into worshipers of the risen Christ. Notice in verse 9, behold, they meet Jesus, behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and did what? They took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They fell at his feet. They, they grabbed hold of his feet, their face to the ground, and they worshipped him. Is that unusual? I'd say that's very unusual. That's very unusual. Notice what, uh, just be reminded what Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. When he is battling with Satan in the wilderness. Right? Satan, uh, verse 8, we're going to look at verse 10. But in, but in verse 8, the devil takes him to a high mountain and says, Hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. All you have to do is worship me. Right? Just fall down and worship me. And notice Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is the, that is the, the uh, declaration of orthodoxy for the nation of Israel. These are orthodox Jewish women. Orthodox Jewish women. They are not idolaters. They are committed of one thing, willing to die for, and that is that God is one. But what do they do when they, when they encounter the resurrected Christ? They fall at his feet, they grab hold of his ankles, and they worship him. Something has happened. Something has been transformed within them. If he were merely a man, then this would be what? This would be blasphemy of the highest order. And yet they fall and they worship because they realize and recognize in that moment they are in the presence of God. They are in the presence of God. Their entire view of Christ has been transformed in that moment in time. 
Now, it's not completely pure. It's not, it's, there's details that have got to be filled out. There's a lot of theological reflection that has to occur on that. And, and by the way, the theological reflection that has to occur on that is going on still to this day. Right? Because we're talking about the God-man. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, right? Fully human in, in all ways except without sin, and yet fully God. And how that all works is still something that causes people's heads to explode. But they did recognize this. They were in the presence of God. And they worshipped him. And they worshipped him. It transformed their lives. And by the way, beloved, that transformation is like a turnstile. It only goes in one direction. When someone passes through the turnstile into the presence of the resurrected Christ, when they come to see and understand the resurrection of Christ, there's no going back. There is no going back. You will never, ever be the same again. You will be transformed like these women were transformed. It's unexpected, it's supernatural, it's validational, it's transformational. Fifth, it's corporeal. Corporeal. It means physical. But I needed a word that ended in A-L, so corporeal it is. I guess I could have said physical. But I like corporeal better. Plus, when you take your SAT exam, you'll do that much better now, right? Yeah. Okay, here it is, verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them, they greeted him, they came up. And this is all I want you to see. They took hold of his what? Of his feet. They took hold of his feet. Hallucinations don't have feet. Dreams don't have feet. Spirits don't have feet. Only men have feet. He is a man. The resurrected one is a man. With a corporeal body. A real physical body. Later that same night, Jesus offered his disciples. I spoke of it earlier in Luke 24. He offered his disciples the chance to examine his wounds. And then he did something else. Which I think is really kind of interesting. He said, you got anything to eat? We got some broiled fish. That'll do. I'm not particularly hungry, right? Resurrected people are not hungry people. He took the broiled fish, Luke tells us, and he did what? He ate it. He ate it. Why did he eat it? Because hallucinations don't eat fish. Right? Specters don't eat fish. Spirits don't eat fish. He ate the fish to demonstrate the reality that he is alive in a human body. Now, it is a resurrected human body, to be sure, but it is a human body. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That is absolutely essential. It is absolutely essential. Because if he did not rise bodily from the dead, then he did not conquer death. And if he did not conquer death, then he did not conquer sin. So it must be. He must be alive forevermore in a human body. The first fruit, that which we will someday be like. He was corporeal. Sixth, it was undesirable. It was undesirable, not for everyone, but for some. Right? Verses 11 and 12. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers. Jesus' resurrection was received with overwhelming joy by his disciples, but it was an undesirable event for his enemies, to say the least. 
Now, previously, they had taunted him on the cross, right? Chapter 27, verse 42. Come down from the cross, and then we will believe, right? Demonstrate your power to us, and then we will believe. Show us another sign, any sign, and then we will believe. No sign will be shown you except the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, the heart of the earth. So his resurrection is the sign. The sign. But they don't believe. They don't believe because they had no intention of believing. They have no intention of believing. Beyond that, notice, they have no intention of even investigating. There is no record that any one of them made a trip to the, tr- to the tomb to find out, hey, is this thing really empty? They don't want to reconsider their opinion with regard to, to Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he? I mean, he was raised from the dead. You would think it would cause someone to at least slow down, pause, think, well, wait a minute. Maybe I misjudged this whole thing. Maybe I'm on the wrong track here. No, not at all. Immediately, what do they do? They gather together with the elders. So, so those are the, the um, community leaders. So you've got the, uh, the chief priests meeting with the, with the elders, the wealthy families. This is what makes up the Sanhedrin, you know, absent the Pharisees section. And, um, and they consult together about what are they going to do with this problem. Man, we got a problem. We got a problem here. We got a missing body. We have a missing body. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. We can't admit that we were wrong here. We can't admit that we misjudged him. We can't admit that that the things that he said have been validated in his resurrection. And, And we can't admit the possibility that he actually is who he said he was. Because that will mean that we are wrong and we need to repent of our sin. And we need to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And we're not going to do that. That is entirely undesirable. We are way too proud to contemplate that reality. And so number seven. It's resisted. It's resisted. They gave, verse 12, a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. They bribed Judas. They bribed the witnesses. And now they complete their bargain with the devil by bribing the guards to lie about what happened, right? And, and on the face of it, it is such an absurd lie. While we were asleep, his disciples came and stole the body, really. On the face of it, it's foolish. If you're asleep, you don't know who came. You don't know that anybody came. You don't know anything. You're asleep. You're asleep. And yet, that's the story they are given to spread. Now, they have to be given a considerable sum of money, verse 12. There's a very large sum of money that has to go to them to spread this, okay? Because, well, for all kinds of reasons, but not the least of which is sort of their self-respect to own this story. I also find it interesting, by the way, and uh, this is the one story that they put a guard on the tomb in order to prevent from happening. Isn't that interesting? They go to Pilate and they say, hey, we need a guard on the tomb because his disciples might come and steal the body and say he's risen from the dead. And that'll be worse. You know, that'll be a worse lie than him saying that he was Messiah. And then he rises from the dead. And what's their plan? Say that his disciples came and stole him while we were sleeping. Really? Really? How much is it going to take right, for me to pass around that fable? Notice, by the way, it's not like if you're asked, that's what you're to say. 
You are to say, verse 13, his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And they took the money and did as they'd been instructed. You are to go out and you are actively to say, the disciples came at night while we were sleeping and stole the body of Jesus. That's what we want you to do. And by the way, if Pilate finds out about it, okay, Pilate by this time is probably in Caesarea. They're thinking he won't find out about it. If he does find out about it, we'll twist his arm. We'll grease his palm, and this whole thing will just be over with. By the way, Matthew says to us, right, this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel sometime around A.D. 50, Maybe, maybe a year or two after that, but I think around A.D. 50. And so this is 20 years later. 20 years later, Matthew is saying that, that among the, the, the Jewish unbelieving Jewish community, they're saying that the reason that there's no body, the reason we can't take you to a body is because the disciples came and stole it. You guys stole it while our guards were sleeping. And how do we know that? Because the guards told us. Ridiculous. Patently false. And yet this is the best that can be done. By the way, the story didn't end there. Justin Martyr, in the second century, in his, um, his little um, written work called The Dialogue with Trifo, he records the following. He says, you Jewish leaders have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his his disciples stole him by night from the tomb and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. we're, uh, We're now... 130 years after the resurrection, and the lie is continuing to be spoken. That his disciples came and stole him at night while we were asleep. It just continues to amaze how hard-hearted unbelief can be. When one precludes the possibility of Christ as Messiah, one will go to any length to avoid reality. And that's exactly what happens here. They hear the empty tomb. The soldiers tell them what they, what they really did experience. And immediately they, they meet together. They consult. They want to know, how do we subvert this? How do we deflect this? How do we marginalize this? How do we deny the reality of the event of the resurrection? And beloved, people are still doing it today. People will go to the nth degree to avoid the, the reality of the empty tomb. Because if you admit the empty tomb, then you come face to face with the resurrected Lord. The resurrection was unexpected, supernatural, validational, transformational, corporeal, undesired, and resisted. The question is, what is your reaction this morning? What is your reaction to the resurrection? Let's pray. Our Father, the Apostle Paul says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That reality, the Lordship of Christ, and thus his rule and reign over this creation is a certainty validated by his resurrection from the dead. As he will say a few verses later in this very same chapter, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the messianic king. 
And so, our Father, this morning, as we contemplate our reaction to this event, we pray that your Spirit would work in our hearts even now and confirm this truth. For those, Father, who are here this morning who who do not yet know Christ in his resurrected glory, who have yet to humble their own hearts before him, who in many ways are like the religious leadership of the nation of Israel, would go to any length to avoid the accountability that comes. I pray that even now, in this moment, that you would convict their hearts, that you would open their eyes and that they would come to Christ and be forgiven. And for those, our Father, who believe, for whom the resurrection is a settled reality, I pray, Father, for us that you would cause that truth to reside even more deeply within our hearts. For it is in the resurrection of Christ that the certainty of our victory over sin and our own life everlasting is vouchsafed. It is in the resurrection of Christ and thus the certainty of his second coming and messianic kingdom in which we will find the true relief from the ills of this world that our souls long for. Oh, Father, it is all in the resurrection. It all finds its focus in the resurrection. May your spirit do his good work in us with regard to this truth. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.